Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to have you here. I mean, in my eyes, I feel like you need a little introduction. But for those who are perhaps new to this women's health, reproductive health space, can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do at The Hormone yes, Dietitian? I'm Melissa Groves Azero. I am the CEO and founder of The Hormone Dietitian, LLC. I'm an integrative women's health dietitian. I specialize and work exclusively with women's health and hormone issues, um, in particular PCOS, infertility, and other hormone imbalances and hormone-driven conditions. So I work with patients virtually, one-on-one. I also have a number of online courses and programs available. Amazing, of which are all fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) highly recommend you check out Melissa's range of digital products, especially if you're not in the US and can't work with her one-on-one. So I recall, Melissa, that being a dietitian is not your first career. Is that right? And you worked in advertising in New York City, is that correct? Yes. Um, my first degree was in English and dance, which naturally led to a career in pharmaceutical advertising, right? Um, I could spell medical terms really well, and so I started as an editor, and I sort of gradually moved up the rank to a copywriter, and then finally an associate creative director. And I, I think, you know, all of the stereotypes about about the New York City advertising lifestyle are true. You know, the the drink cart that comes through at 3 p.m. on Thursdays, um, traveling all the time. I was working, you know, an 80-hour week was a good week. I was working all the time. I was traveling all the time. I was living out of a suitcase. And it all sounds very glamorous, um, you know, that you're traveling for business and conferences and things. But you know, the bottom line is a conference room in Paris looks just like a conference room in New Jersey. And honestly, it was starting to impact my own mental and physical health and well-being. And there there came a time where I had I had compromised one too many times on something that I really wanted. For me, uh, the last straw for me was the marathon. So I, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2008. I was very proud of that accomplishment. I was qualified to run it again in 2009. I 
got about halfway through the training and realized that I just wasn't wasn't ready, you know, and I, I didn't want to run it again just to run it. So I, I, I quit and I deferred my entry for another year. And then the same thing happened again in 2010, where I had just been traveling so much and working too many late nights. You know, when you're working till 11 or 12 at night and being back in the office at nine and you're working weekends, there's just not a lot of time for running, you know, jogging even, let alone putting in 16, 18 mile training runs. So that was really the last straw where I I really had to ask myself, how much longer am I willing to put the things that I love on hold? You know, and in addition to that, it's just, you know, having to keep up with the lifestyle with way too much coffee every morning to get started, um, almost entirely takeout diet. Even if I was able to order healthier takeout options, it still, I wasn't cooking any food from scratch. Um, lots of, lots of drinks and wine to wind down at night. And then, you know, maybe four hours of sleep most nights. So it really was not a good place to be in. And so I, I really started to formulate my, my escape from advertising plan, as I called it. And I realized that, you know, Stemming all the way back to my time in dance, um, nutrition had always interested me and I had always been drawn to sort of a more natural approach to health. Um, you know, I, I believed that food could make a difference in, in our lives and our health. And, and so that was something that I was very interested in. So I started, you know, looking into what what that would entail. And what it ended up looking like going back to school as an adult was doing a large part of it part-time while I was still in New York and then leaving New York so that I could complete the in-person part of the schooling, um, you know, on location, um, which when you're paying $2,400 a month for a studio apartment in New York is not something you're really able to do as a student. And my parents were up in New England. And so I came up here and ended up completing my schooling up here in New England. I'm in New Hampshire. And it took seven years to go from deciding that I wanted to do that to finally getting the letters after my name, which in the U.S. is RD. I'm a registered dietitian. Yeah. What an amazing story. I I love that story and I just selfishly wanted to hear it. So I hope everybody enjoyed. But I guess why then the hormone pathway and, and particularly you're very, very much known for, for your amazing content and approach to PCOS, but you're also a, really amazing at all the hormone kind of pieces when it comes to reproductive health. So what kind of drove you into that space, particularly once you got those all important letters? Yeah, you I think, you know, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of people assume that I I do have PCOS. Um, I do not have PCOS. That's not an issue that I struggle with personally. Um, I definitely, you know, like like most healthcare practitioners who go on to specialize in a condition, um, I think there's there's a grain of truth or a history um, with it for most of us. And so part of 
part of when I was living in New York and living that stressful lifestyle and eating all that takeout. Um, I've always struggled with horrible, painful, heavy periods. Really was put on the pill at the age of 18 and tried to go off it a couple of times in my mid-20s when I didn't necessarily need it for contraception. I was like, oh, let me try to go off this. And I would just be crippled for, you know, for me, it was mostly mood symptoms. Um, I would just be almost paralyzed where I couldn't leave my apartment for two weeks. And then my period would start and that was horrible. And then I couldn't leave my bed for four or five days. And so I was having these sort of cyclical problems that were happening. And I, I didn't realize at the time how much my lifestyle was contributing to my symptoms. So I always did have, you know, this interest in hormones and hormone driven conditions. What happened with PCOS, which I had never heard of, don't think I even learned anything about it in school. I don't think we covered that in any way. Um, I was working at my first job as a dietitian and I was working, I was seeing all of the clients who came in for weight loss. Um, and I was in the office of a functional medicine dietitian. And when we were talking about functional medicine, we're looking for the root causes, you know, looking at what you're eating and how much you're exercising and it's not adding up. Like I can't figure out why you're not losing weight. So we we dig deeper. We do the testing. So we look, you know, is your insulin high? Do you have high inflammation? Do you have low thyroid? Is your cortisol high? And that was the first time I ever came across a patient with PCOS who had sort of all of it. She had the insulin resistance, the inflammation, gut microbiome disturbances. Um, she had some hypothyroid too. So everything was, was working against her when it came to her goals for her weight. And that was when I started researching, you know, what was available and, and what the proper treatment approach for PCOS was. And the bottom line was I wasn't really finding a lot. You know, I was finding, um, you know, sort of the conventional medicine rhetoric to lose five to 10% of your body weight and that will just take care of your PCOS. But looking at all these abnormal markers, it, it makes it almost impossible to lose weight when you're insulin resistant or when you have such high inflammation or when your androgens are high. Um, you really can't tap into that stored fat and lose weight. And so that was where I was, I was like, there has to be a better way. What, what can we, what can we do to address these root causes? And I also, you know, and I know this is very similar to your approach with, with your practice and why you do the things you do. But part of why I do what I do and why I work so hard for PCOS is that I'm just outraged. I'm outraged at, you know, the lack of understanding in conventional medicine. I feel like conventional medicine is really failing these women. They're being told, you know, lose weight or eat less, move more, um, take the pill, come back when you're ready to get pregnant. And I just knew I could do more. You know, I knew I could help with nutrition and lifestyle strategies. On the other end of the spectrum, if you're looking at functional medicine practitioners, they're recommending these really restrictive diets. You know, if you have PCOS, you must avoid gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, carbs, fun, like eliminate all fun from your life forever. And it's like, this is, this is a lifelong condition. You can't tell someone 
you can never have sugar again because you have this condition. Like, what kind of life is that? I have had patients literally tell me I would rather not live than eat that diet for the rest of my life. And so, you know, there really had to to be a place of balance. And I feel like, especially a lot of the functional practitioners are, are medical practitioners. They are not dietitians. They're sort of handing out these restrictive diets, but then we're left in the trenches with these women as they're trying to follow these impossible recommendations. And so, you know, I really aim to bring a very realistic approach to what a sustainable PCOS-friendly diet looks like. So that's really how I ended up getting into what I do. And and it's just been such a rewarding community to work with. You know, most of the women who work with me are working with me because they're they're struggling to get pregnant because it's very difficult to get pregnant when you're not having regular cycles. So we work, you know, if we get your cycles from 60 days down to 30 days, we have already doubled your chances of getting pregnant. Um, and so it's a very rewarding population to work with. I absolutely agree. I adore working with PCOS in my clinic too because I know if we implement the strategies, it's going to change so much for people. There is just so there's so much room to make a difference there. There is with endometriosis too, but I tend to find that we're not getting 100% turnaround in most instances. We have to have a bit more of a different ballpark um, view of it. And yes, you know, not everything is going to be 100% solved with diet PCOS either, but a, a big chunk can really be improved um, and, and cycle regularity being one of them. Now, I wanted to take a little bit of a different format for this episode, Melissa, because we have other episodes about PCOS and I wanted to kind of, yeah, I guess talk about some of the common myths or, or you know, yeah, I guess misconceptions about PCOS that I know we both see a lot of online and also from our clients. So I wanted to put these to you and then we can put them to bed or bust them or, you know, validate them um, so we can have some accurate information and then we can both link to this podcast episode whenever we get one of those DMs because <laughs> we, we both know we, we absolutely get these on the regular. So a gluten-free diet is recommended for PCOS. Is that fact or myth or the gray area? Mostly a hundred percent myth. Um, so there are zero research studies on gluten and PCOS and on the benefits of a gluten-free diet for PCOS. There's literally zero research. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of lazy medicine to, uh, spread the rhetoric that gluten is inflammatory for everyone and that because PCOS is an inflammatory condition, you need to avoid gluten. Um, there's a, a few reasons that that's faulty logic. Gluten is not inflammatory for all people. In fact, in some people, there's evidence that gluten is 
anti-inflammatory, particularly with um, metabolic disorders. They It actually has been shown to lower inflammatory compounds in the body. Um, and secondly, because PCOS is a syndrome, um, not every person has the same collection of root causes or the same presentation. So while yes, it's more likely to have inflammation if you do have PCOS, not every person with PCOS has systemic inflammation. So you know, telling someone to avoid gluten on the off chance that that's what's causing the inflammation when PCOS itself creates inflammation, there are other ways to target that inflammation without cutting gluten out entirely. I also think that that forces us to eliminate some foods that have some real benefits for PCOS. One of my favorite foods to recommend for PCOS is barley because barley actually has evidence that it lowers blood sugar and it's a whole grain and it's high in fiber. And, you know, if you're just cutting out gluten, you would avoid the benefits of barley. I love barley. Hmm. One of my favorite. Um, when I get bored of risotto, I make a pearl barley risotto. So delicious. My favorite. What about a dairy-free diet, Melissa, when it comes to PCOS? I know there's a lot of conversation around insulin growth factor one and acne. And acne is one of those kind of one of the key hyperandrogenism symptoms of PCOS. So What's your take on a dairy-free diet as a universal for PCOS? Obviously, people with intolerances and all that kind of good stuff aside. Yeah. Similarly, there's one study on dairy and PCOS, and it was actually a dairy-free, low-carb diet. So it did show some benefits. It was a small patient population. We don't know if the benefits were from cutting the dairy or because it was a more moderate-carb diet. Um, you know, in a weight loss, you know, restricted calorie diet. So we really don't know. Um, I find dairy to be very individual. Um, I think, you know, it is important to note that la- lactose sensitivity, for example, is very common. Um, I, I personally am allergic to casein. So, you know, it is an inflammatory food for me. I think um, really it's the, the link with acne. So if someone has acne, um, and that's one of their more bothersome symptoms, then I might say that it might be worth investigating whether removing dairy might benefit. Um, We've talked about this before, though, where if you remove dairy and you see little to no improvement in your symptoms, then why remove something? You know, it's it's causing you harm. I I know how hard it is to follow a dairy-free diet. It's very difficult when eating out. It's even more difficult depending on where you live in the world and what you have access to. Um, so really it's individual. And you know, similar similarly, we've also talked about not cutting out the entire category of foods. So if you can't have lactose, maybe you can have lactose-free cheese like cheddar. If you can't have casein, maybe you can get away with butter. Um, A lot of people who don't tolerate dairy do fine with fermented dairy like yogurt. I think really, you know, the 
The link with the acne and the dairy is seen in what I would consider excess dairy consumption. So it's not that little sprinkle of cheese that you're putting on your tacos or the little sprinkle of Parmesan you're putting on your pasta. It's more than three glasses of milk a day. And I don't think, you know, I certainly don't recommend consuming that level of dairy for most people. I think most people would have trouble tolerating that. So, you know, mostly myth, Mm. but definitely individual. You have to go on your own tolerance with dairy. Yeah. Yeah. And then make sure you're hitting those calcium requirements outside of the dairy, which is another challenge in and of itself sometimes. What about PCOS and sugar? Should someone with PCOS never eat any kind of sugar, honey, maple syrup ever again? I know you alluded to this earlier, but I hear this Yeah, so I take kind of a moderate approach. You know, according to the U.S. food guidelines, up to 10% of your calories can come from added sugar, which I think is quite a bit much. Um, I tend to look towards the WHO guidelines. Um, WHO recommends that up to 5% of your daily calories can come from added sugar. On a 2,000 calorie a day diet, that works out to around 25 grams of added sugar a day. So, you know, trying to have a little added sugar, be mindful of the amount of sugar you're consuming. I think it helps put certain things in perspective, like You absolutely have room to include a cookie or my personal favorite, a dark chocolate peanut butter cup after my lunch. Um, But when you're looking at some of the things like Starbucks beverages that have, you know, three or four days worth of sugar in it, that kind of makes you realize that they really should be very, very occasional kind of treats. But there's, there's room for added sugar. We just need to be mindful of it. Keep it to a limit because, you know, that insulin resistance really is a main driver for a lot of people with PCOS. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I always say, and I'm not sure if you're um, like on board with this perspective as well, is yes, we want to be limiting added sugars, but if a little bit of added sugar helps you consume a nutritious food, then that's probably something we're more willing to compromise on. So, for example, I refuse to eat rolled oats or porridge without maple syrup or honey. Like, I just won't eat it plain. I just think it's disgusting and I won't eat it. So I'm willing to put one to two teaspoons of maple syrup on because I'm going to get a whole grain high-fibre breakfast in, yes, at the expense of two teaspoons of maple syrup, but that's okay. So I think, like, perspective in terms of the context of the diet and the meal and the trade-offs that we're doing is important. You don't just throw the whole oatmeal out. Exactly. I've had clients who really feel very strongly that they have to have their honey in their tea, for example. Um, I talk about it more with, with dressings or things that, you know, maybe a little more processed than what we're used to eating. Here in the U.S., um, in the Midwest, there's a ranch dressing. Everybody loves ranch dressing. And my view on it is if if ranch dressing is what it takes for you to get those carrots in or get, get that broccoli in, then have at it. Have your ranch dressing with your broccoli. Yeah, absolutely. I think it doesn't need to be boring. We can We can definitely make some room for these things in our diet. Okay, the next one is 
everybody with PCOS universally has insulin resistance. Is that true? It is not true. Um, It is the vast majority. So, you know, I I hate that BMI is used in studies to define categories, but really with a BMI over over 25, which is considered overweight, up to 95% of people with PCOS do have insulin resistance with a BMI that's under 25. Um, the number's more like up to 70, 75%. Um, so it's not everyone. Um, I do approach PCOS. Um, I always tell my clients, we're going to treat you like your insulin resistance until proven otherwise. So until we get some labs back confirming that you are not in fact insulin resistant, we are going to treat you like you are because bottom line is, Eating a blood sugar balancing diet is not harmful for anyone, PCOS or not. I myself aim to keep my blood sugar balanced. You know, it just makes for a better, makes me feel better. I have more energy. I'm not crashing. So I don't, you know, it's it's not harmful to focus on blood sugar balance, I would say. No, there's no real downside, but it, yeah, there is a, there is some room f- for there not to be insulin resistance, but you can't, you can't assume you don't have insulin resistance until you have those tests come back. Also though, you can't assume you don't have insulin resistance if you haven't had the right tests. Mm. A lot of people will just have a fasting glucose or an A1C and they think, oh, my, I've, everything's fine, but they've never had their insulin tested. Oh, yes. And not under pressure either. You could be great fasting, but once you're under load, it's a different story. <laughs> I see that a lot. Absolutely. Okay. What about this one? Everyone with PCOS, quote unquote, looks the same. I see a lot of harm happen because of this misconception. In particular, I would say my lean PCOS patients or those who have, you know, a a BMI uh, 25 or under their normal weight or even underweight sometimes, um, it delays diagnosis for them because their doctors say, you don't look like you have PCOS. And, you know, they, they could be pretty far down fertility treatment without having received a proper diagnosis based on the doctor's preconceptions of what PCOS looks like or not. Um, it absolutely doesn't have a look. You know, there are some physical signs and symptoms that may kind of clue us in that androgens might be high or insulin might be high, for example, um, but there's no no look to PCOS. No, absolutely not. And I agree. I think this misconception does more harm than good and absolutely delays the process for many people. Okay, the next one is everyone with PCOS will have a hard time conceiving or will require fertility interventions to conceive. There are many, many babies in this world that are here because women were told that they cannot conceive. And so they never worried about contraception. You know, even if you're, it's important to remember, even if your cycles are irregular, you may still be ovulating and it it may not be when you think it is, which actually makes it easier to have an accidental pregnancy because you're not 
able to time intercourse around your fertile window. Um, so yes, there are some accidental babies here because some of my patients were told that by doctors. And I do always try to warn them when they start working with, with me that ovulation comes back before your first period comes back. So um, two weeks before, to be specific. So yeah, I mean, I think it's... um. I actually get kind of annoyed when people refer to PCOS as infertility because it really isn't infertility. It's really more a condition of subfertility. Um, usually the barrier is ovulation. And once we, once we get you ovulating, um, there's usually nothing to stop pregnancy from happening, not from PCOS itself anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is one of the most frustrating um, pieces of advice advice air quotes that um, clients get given with PCOS is oh you're probably not going to be able to conceive or not with ease and that is such a misconception and you certainly should not be relying on your diagnosis for contraception and that's the case for any amenorrheic disorder. I also want to add to that, that just because you have PCOS doesn't mean that you're going to have to need IVF or that you're going to have to need ovulation medications like letrozole or Clomid. Mm. You know, it's a personal choice. Some, some clients do choose to go on to use the medications or choose to go on and have IVF. But just because you have PCOS does not mean that you you need those interventions. Absolutely. There are so many factors at play when it comes to fertility. If you've had PCOS and you've really not been treated, you know, appropriately from all angles and now you're 38 and you want a baby now and you've already been trying for six to 12 months, you're probably more likely to want to just get the party started. And that's totally cool. But diet and lifestyle actually makes those ovulation induction medications work better um, in terms of your response as well. So it's not one or the other either. And I think a lot of people feel like when they work, especially with functional um, healthcare providers, they feel like you're either all in or you're all out. Otherwise, I don't want to buy a review. And that's not necessarily the case. Is that right? Yeah, I also, you know, I've never met a pregnant woman who regretted working on her nutrition and lifestyle. So it's only going to help no matter, you know, what avenue you end up going down to get pregnant. You know, I've even had clients who are older and, um, you know, have ended up using surrogate eggs, for example, but you still want your, your uterus to be a healthy place for that egg to implant. Um, and it's still going to be your blood that's nourishing that baby as it's growing. So super important. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes we don't have time. You know, sometimes we don't have time to to give the nutrition and lifestyle to work, um, especially when someone's in that sort of time crunch um, pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also the other aspect of PCOS and heading into pregnancy is that increased risk of gestational diabetes and diet and lifestyle have a lot to have have a lot to say for pregnancy complications in both preconception and during pregnancy. So it is never a bad time to start thinking about your diet and lifestyle when it comes to PCOS wherever you are on that life life cycle. Okay, the next one is everyone with PCOS has an irregular period. So everyone's going to have those very long cycles that we hear about 60 days, 90 days, I haven't had a period for a year. Is that universally true, Melissa? 
No, I'm sure you've covered the diagnosis criteria on the podcast before, but um, irregular cycles are only one of the three diagnostic criteria, the other two being the polycystic ovaries and the high androgens. So it's possible to have high androgens and polycystic ovaries. So those would be your two diagnostic criteria while having regular periods. Um, I think it's really interesting. I had one client who had 28 day periods on the nose. Um, and so she thought she was having regular cycles. And when we did some deeper testing and some tracking of her cycle, what we realized was she was ovulating on day 20 and having an eight day luteal phase. So really she was having late ovulation. She was just having a short luteal phase. So I had to kind of counsel her around the fact that mm. your cycles might actually get longer when we, when we work on it for a, you know, a brief amount um, of time. Um, but that's actually a better sign because we want your luteal phases to be longer. So yeah, so you never really know what's happening. You can't assume, you know, even if you are having a 28 day cycle, I would like to throw that in there. Even if you are having a 28 day cycle, you can't assume that things are normal or that you are ovulating. Um, if you're if you're not really tracking your cycles. Mm. Yeah, and it may not be on day 14. Almost never, actually. Almost yeah. never. I know. No, almost never. Absolutely agree. And that luteal phase length is so important, especially from a fertility perspective, but important in general. All right, and the last myth buster, Melissa, is everyone with PCOS has a painful period or PCOS creates pain. Oh, this, this one really burns me up. I see this all the time. My PCOS is so painful. Um, PCO, uh, pain is not a symptom of PCOS. You know, what I, what I tell people, um, is that just because you have received a diagnosis of PCOS doesn't mean that you don't also have other hormone imbalances or other hormone-driven conditions happening. Um, pain and the other one is bleeding between periods. If someone is bleeding for months on end, um, I get really angry <laughs> about it being sort of blamed on PCOS because it's, it's not the PCOS that's causing it. Pain is a symptom of fibroids and endometriosis and ovarian cysts, which functional painful ovarian cysts are different than polycystic ovaries. So pain could be coming from a variety of places and we really need to investigate where it's happening. Likewise, abnormal bleeding, bleeding between cycles absolutely needs to be investigated. And one of the reasons why I get so passionate and so angry about it is because there's a four times higher risk of endometrial cancer with PCOS. And the reason for that is the irregular cycles and what's called unopposed estrogen, because even though your estrogen may not be high, if you're not ovulating regularly, you're not making progesterone to balance out that estrogen. And so your tissues are constantly being exposed to just estrogen. Um, and that is what is responsible for endometrial cancer. I have had clients in their early 30s be diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Um, and one of the hallmark symptoms of endometrial cancer is abnormal bleeding. So that is one that I, I 
immediately you need to go to your doctor, you need to demand further testing um, because that is not a sign of PCOS. Mm. So yeah, I get very passionate about this one just because while they're not, well, pain and bleeding are not symptoms of PCOS, they are symptoms of other serious um, consequences of PCOS. So need to be, need to be investigated for sure. Absolutely. And I think just piggybacking off this conversation, because it is such an important point and something that I'm constantly needing to talk about with clients is that if you're not having a period for three months or more, you need to be going to your doctor. You cannot let uterine lining build up for months and months and months. That is a risk factor for endometrial hyperplasia and endometrial cancer. And I know that is a really scary thing to talk about. And a lot of our clients have, you know, some level of health anxiety, but it's not going to be any better not doing anything. And I know you're working hard on trying to get your period back, but sometimes it takes a long time. And so we need that lining to be shed. Yeah, I call it cleaning house. We'll just... <laughs> Go in and ask the doc for some progesterone so you can clear house um, while you're working on all those nutrition and lifestyle things. But, you know, those things can take time to kick in sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Melissa, you've been a delight. You've busted so many myths with me. And I know you have recently launched your podcast, Hormonally Yours, which is a must listen, everyone. I'll leave it linked in the show notes. But can you tell us a bit more about how people can connect with you and learn more about your offerings? Most of our listeners are from Australia. We do have some US-based listeners, but um, I'd love for them to know how they can find you. Yeah, so primarily Instagram. I'm the dot hormone dot dietitian with a T. Um, it's how it's spelled here in the US. Um, and I post, you know, most days of the week, uh, mostly about PCOS, also about other hormone imbalances and fertility. My website is thehormonedietitian.com as well. And you can find links there to my programs. As Steph mentioned, um, I can only work with patients one-on-one in the US, um, but I do have programs available. The PCOS Root Cause Roadmap is my signature PCOS course, and that is always open for enrollment. Uh, my new course, the Period Problems Root Cause Roadmap, which is focused on estrogen dominance and estrogen-driven conditions. We're currently running it. We'll probably run it again in the fall, but you can get on the wait list. Um, I have a couple other shorter webinars you can check out on my website as well. And then, yes, the podcast is Hormonally Yours. It is four months old, super exciting. We are covering all sorts of topics in women's health, uh, both with guest experts and with women just like you, um, having patient interviews, sharing their experiences, dealing with the conditions. So it's been a really great addition. Um, super fun to get to chat with people. Amazing. Thank you again, Melissa, for your time. And I will catch everyone in the next episode. Bye.